Welcome to a very special bonus episode of Anti-Social Studies. This episode is specifically for my U.S. history students. Hey, y'all, but I'm hoping that all of my listeners will also find some of this information interesting or useful. So here's the deal. At my school, all of our classes take a class trip every year, right? So the freshmen take a trip, the sophomores take a trip, you get the drill. So the juniors are getting to go for a week to the amazing city of New Orleans or Nolens, as no one should ever call it. So next week, they're going to be gone from school the week before spring break. Like, how lucky are they? They get two weeks off in March. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Meanwhile, the trip I got to sponsor and chaperone was a nine-hour drive to rural Arkansas, where we basically like slept outside to experience deep poverty. So I'm pretty sure I drew the short end of the stick on the chaperoning competition. Anyway, it's not about me. So I promised my students that I would give them a little history of New Orleans so they could have some fun things to look out for, mostly just Andrew Jackson statues. But then we got all caught up in this amazing movie in class called Selma. All my students were like, Emily, this is an amazing movie. And I was like, I know it's about Selma. It's awesome. Anyway, so we decided to kind of postpone the lesson. And instead we spent the day or actually this whole week watching Selma. I was kind of a bad teacher this week. I was one of those history teachers that just puts on a movie. Anyway, moving on. So since we didn't have time to do this lesson in class, I told them that I would make a special podcast episode that they could listen to on their eight to nine hour bus drive over to New Orleans. So I'm gonna make this quick and simple so that y'all can get back to your Snapchatting or Fortniteing or whatever the heck you kids do these days. Today's episode is all about New Orleans, the history of the city, and the history behind some of the major places that you'll visit in New Orleans. My hope is that in between y'all looking at your phones, when you glance up to see if there's an Instagram-worthy picture to be had, you'll at least see a building or see a statue and think, I'm pretty sure Emily mentioned something about this at some point in class. It's all I really ever hope for you kids. So... This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's get some historical context. So the first part of New Orleans that you really need to understand is that it has changed hands so many times in history. I mean, first, as with all things in our country, it belonged to the indigenous people. But I mean, we all know how that turned out, right? The area where New Orleans is now has been continuously inhabited since the year 400. For context, that's 76 years before Rome fell and 200 years before Islam became a thing. So, it's old. The Mississippian tribes who lived there built mounds, earthworks, and transformed their environment to conduct trade along the rivers and man-made canals. And I will say, when I was in school, I definitely remember learning about mound people, and it did not sound very impressive. Like, I think I pictured hobbits living in their hobbit holes, But seriously, y'all should Google those mound civilizations. Like, imagine Mesopotamian ziggurats or Egyptian pyramids, but made entirely out of the earth. It's really amazing. Oh, and also, when white people first showed up all along the Mississippi River and observed these mounds, which are clearly man-made structures, they're like at right angles and stuff like that, these white explorers first believed that these were naturally occurring. So what that means is that it was more plausible to white explorers that the earth just naturally jutted up into perfectly symmetrical temple-like structures rather than believe that Native Americans built it. And that's what we call racism, kids. So 
After the white explorers took control of the region, it first was controlled by the French. They founded La Nouvelle Orleans. I'm sure I said that wrong, but it's New Orleans in French, in the year 1718. For some context, that's about 100 years after the first permanent British colony in Jamestown was founded, and about 60 years before Americans declared independence. The city was named after Philip II, the Duke of Orleans. His uncle was Louis XIV, the guy with the amazing hair who built Versailles and made nobles dress him in the morning. Philip, the Duke of Orleans, ruled France on behalf of his cousin, who technically became king at the age of five. Philip was like, mm, why don't I handle things for a little bit while you, I don't know, like learn how to read. One of the main parts of the city where you'll probably spend time is now called the French Quarter. After a hurricane destroyed the city in 1722, the French rebuilt it in their European style, and you'll notice that the streets are in a perfect grid system. The earliest population of Europeans in New Orleans were what we would call riffraff. Or, does anyone use that word anymore? Is that just an Aladdin? Am I the only one that uses that word? Anyway. The people who populated the early city of New Orleans were deported galley slaves, fur traders, and gold hunters. They were all capitalizing on the proximity to the mouth of the mighty Mississippi River. New Orleans was basically the French equivalent of the Wild West. When France lost to Spain in the Seven Years' War, that's what Americans called the French and Indian War, Spain took control of New Orleans. Two massive fires destroyed most of the city, which is why you'll now see the French Quarter characterized by Spanish-style architecture. It's kind of confusing. You'll see interior courtyards, large arched doorways, wrought iron fences, massive balconies. At this point, New Orleans was the main trading port for the Spanish to bring sugar and rum into the U.S. from their Caribbean colonies, especially Cuba. During the Spanish colonial era, Madame Lalaurie lived in her mansion at the French Quarter. She was a Creole socialite who threw amazing parties. Oh, and also, she was a serial killer. She held captive, tortured, and murdered slaves in her household. Partygoers had stories of black people running through her dining room trying to escape from her basement. Seriously, look her up, Madame Lalaurie. She was terrifying. After a fire at her mansion, the authorities discovered slaves in her attic who had been treated so cruelly that a mob of outraged citizens sacked her home. But don't worry, she escaped and lived out her life in Paris. Ah... Uh. At some point, New Orleans went back into French hands, and to be honest, I have no idea why. Let's just not worry about it. But it's at this point that Napoleon Bonaparte decided to sell the Louisiana Territory to Thomas Jefferson for like $3. Napoleon needed cash fast to help put down the Haitian Revolution and to finance his quest to conquer all of Europe because, you know, he's Napoleon, and that's what you do. Between direct payment and canceling debts, the U.S. paid France about $15 million for 538 million acres of land throughout the Midwest. Today, that land is worth $1.3 trillion. It was a hell of a deal. So at this point, in 1803, New Orleans became an American city. But because of its complex history, New Orleans has always been amazingly diverse, from indigenous people to European settlers to mixed-race Creoles and freed or escaped enslaved Africans, New Orleans offered opportunity. This is one of the reasons why, 100 years later, New Orleans would become the birthplace of jazz, a musical style that infuses so many cultures into one sound. Freed or escaped slaves coming from the Caribbean brought their call-and-response vocals and improvisation, while Europeans brought their large military band music. Julia, a teacher at our school, does this way more justice than me, but jazz is basically the musical equivalent of the melting pot character of our country, and New Orleans is its physical representation. In 1811, New Orleans was actually the site of the largest slave revolt in American history. Known as the German Coast Uprising, around 100 men started marching from sugar plantations toward New Orleans, gathering more enslaved people along the way. Over the course of the uprising, they burned down five plantation houses, several sugarcane mills, and countless crops as they walked 25 miles. 95 black people died, and two white men died. 
White men, along with the U.S. Army, hunted down the leaders of the uprising, eventually executing 44 African Americans. Their heads were hung around the Place des Armes, now Jackson Square, as a warning. So think about that when you're wandering around the square eating beignets. Or don't, you know. New Orleans rose to prominence during the War of 1812. The British recognized the city as an important economic hub connecting the southwestern parts of the United States with the industrial north, so they sent a large force to capture the city. This is where Andrew Jackson rode in on his horse and was like, no way, British, haven't you heard? I'm Andrew Jackson and I'm the hero of New Orleans. I don't know, Jeff can probably tell you the actual history, but that's how I like to imagine it. At the epic Battle of New Orleans, 2,000 out of the 9,000 British troops were killed, but it turns out the entire battle was fought after a peace treaty had already been signed. I guess no one sent a memo down to Louisiana to let Andrew Jackson know. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if AJ got the memo and hid it so he would have an excuse to ride around on his horse, killing British people as the hero of New Orleans. Honestly, guys, I'm not a military historian. Like, give me a break. During the Civil War, New Orleans was captured quickly without any bloodshed by Northern Union troops, which is why most of its antebellum architecture is still intact. During the Reconstruction era, when the North was guiding the South on how to, you know, not be racist, Louisiana led the way. It was the first state to elect a black governor and its public schools and police were fully integrated. But as we know, racists hate it when other people tell them not to be racist. In 1874, a militia, which is really essentially just dudes with guns who want to make themselves sound more legitimate, they were known as the White League, took control of the city by winning battles against U.S. troops in the French Quarter and along Canal Street. Think about this. A militia of white Americans battled the U.S. military and took control of a major city. And then after Reconstruction ended a few years later, these guys just joined the local police or the National Guard. Oh, great. That'll end well. Side note, a monument in honor of this event, again, when a white racist terrorist organization defeated the U.S. military who was there trying to protect black people, a monument in honor of that event was erected on Canal Street. The Battle of Liberty Place monument stayed up in New Orleans until 2017. Dang. But let's move on to something more uplifting. Similar to Little Rock, New Orleans was at the center of public school integration during the Civil Rights Movement. Ruby Bridges, at age six, was the only African-American student to attend her newly integrated elementary school. Escorted by federal troops, she faced mobs and threats. Again, she was six. But each day she came back to school, and community members of all colors began to step in and protect her. She became a symbol of hope for school integration across the United States. Now, I know that your attention span is already like five minutes past, but let me give you a few other highlights of New Orleans history. During an outbreak of yellow fever in 1905, New Orleans led the way in understanding the role of mosquitoes in spreading disease. They drained and screened water sources and educated the public, leading to a hugely successful campaign of disease prevention. Woohoo! President Teddy Roosevelt, one of my faves, visited the city to show the nation that it was safe, and no cases of yellow fever have been recorded since. Knock on wood. During the Progressive Era and the New Deal, New Orleans was the beneficiary of infrastructure improvements, especially levees that would protect the city from rising floodwaters. These received national attention when the failure of the levee and floodwall system during Hurricane Katrina created, quote, the largest civil engineering disaster in the history of the United States. Around 1,500 people died when the hurricane hit in 2005, along with $125 billion worth of damage. The parts of the city that were most affected, that were the lowest in relation to sea level and with the least maintained levees, were typically also the parts of the city where people of color lived. And there's still a lot of damage to this day. 
During World War II, New Orleans was the main site of the development and construction of Higgins boats. These are the amphibious landing craft you've probably seen in pictures and movies about D-Day, and they were instrumental in winning the war in Europe and especially in the Pacific. Okay, before I let y'all go, let me tell you some fast facts about a few places you'll probably visit on your trip. Number one, Bourbon Street. Now this is the place where tourists make bad decisions, but it was named after the House of Bourbon, the French ruling family when the city was founded. Fun fact number two, Jackson Square. It used to be the Plaza de Armes, but after the Battle of New Orleans, they named it after Andrew Jackson. In the center of the park, you'll see a massive statue to AJ riding his horse. When you see it, please imagine him running around yelling, I'm the hero of New Orleans. That'd make me very happy. Around him on the four corners of the square are four other statues that are meant to be personifications of the four seasons. But that's not as exciting because they're not on horses. Number three, the Garden District is beautiful. It's also where Sandra Bullock lives. I may or may not have walked by her house multiple times and tried to peer into her backyard, but this isn't about me. The reason why the Garden District is so beautiful is because it's always been where the rich white people lived. It was originally a few large plantations, but the land was divided up and sold off to wealthy families who didn't want to live in the French Quarter along with the growing mixed-race population. Originally, these homes were 19th-century mansions surrounded by huge gardens, hence the name. But in the 20th century, as the city became more urban, the plots were divided up and newer gingerbread-type houses were built around each mansion. If you walk through the neighborhood, see if you can tell the 19th century mansions from the newer homes. And tell Sandra I say hi. Finally, Café du Monde is where you will go to eat more beignets than a human is meant to eat. It has been operating since 1862. That's during the Civil War. And what this means, let's think about this for a second, is that while our nation was ripped apart brother against brother, brutal bloodshed over slavery. Someone in New Orleans thought, you know what we need right now? Fried dough. And dang it, he was right. During the war, there was also a coffee shortage, and so the New Orleans Creoles mixed in chicory to supplement the dwindling coffee supplies. And they still use this recipe today, and it gives the coffee a chocolatey flavor. Oh, it's so good. I'm so jealous. So, in summation... Eat all the beignets, listen to jazz, say hi to Andrew and Sandra for me, and have a fantastic time in New Orleans. To my non-student listeners, thank you for indulging me and for sticking it out to the very end of this extra bonus, very special episode. If you haven't already, I hope you check out my full episode on North Korea and get ready in a few weeks as we travel to another super repressive state that for some reason we have a relationship with, Saudi Arabia. As always, follow me on Instagram at Anti-Social Studies and go wherever you get your podcasts and give me a rating and review. Thanks.